to negotiate that and uh, to give ground on that uh, in compromising what the Scriptures clearly teach, I think that's problematic. I think the third thing is the exclusivity of the gospel. Uh, the fact that we're convicted that the Bible teaches that Jesus is the only Savior, that there is no saving revelation in other religions, and that uh, people apart from a conscious faith commitment to Christ cannot be saved. That is going to continue to be offensive uh, to the culture. But also, again, you see uh, persons uh, giving ground on this within the Christian community. And then the fourth one, which is outside, is the um, encroachment of radical Islam. And of the other world religions, Islam, along with Christianity, is evangelistic. Now, evangelistic in different ways, but Islam is evangelistic. And uh, they're not going to back up. Furthermore, they don't just bring a religion. They bring an entire culture with them. And therefore, there really is a clash of cultures that takes place when Christianity meets Islam so these things are going to be on the table for this generation to engage and navigate uh, in one way or the other, in my judgment. That's right. <laughs> I agree. Uh, I, I think you're going to hear a great deal of similarity. I would anticipate that in, uh, in many of these responses. I would frame it a bit differently in terms of the question this seems to be addressed to us. And uh, the first of these, and these aren't in any particular order, but does gender matter? Uh, we're living in a time in which the larger rebellion against the notion of gender, uh, of the idea of two sexes, of male and female, has reached now epic, almost irrational proportions. And the question, does gender matter, is not just a question of, of course, how gender matters. That's a, that's a different question once you accept the fact that gender matters. What's being argued now is that gender is an entirely liquid and plastic concept. And I ended up in a debate about three months ago with a theorist who is rather influential in the public square, suggesting that an individual's gender is a personal construct which is continually in changeability, such that someone can show up with a beard at work one day and address the next and, and the next. Uh, the state of New York has now decided to allow persons to change their birth certificate. In short order, there will be people who will change it twice and three times. Uh, that, that's just how liquid this is becoming. Uh, the second question is this, is there any norm to sex? The issue of homosexuality is the prow of the ship, so to speak. It's, it's the lead issue right now, but it's not the only issue. There are a host of other issues behind it. Uh, one of their own theorists quickly understood this, Michael Foucault, uh, one of the theorists of the gay liberation movement, knew that and, and said quite clearly that, that, that sexuality is, is one question. There are just different ways to get at the question. But if you can deny norms to sexuality, which is what's being done around us, then uh, that's a total moral revolution. Of course, nobody can live totally without norms. So even the people who are pressing the case for what appears to be sexual anarchy have some kind of rules. Just go to some of the local universities here where they say, we have absolutely no parental responsibility, no in loco parentis. We don't try to legislate morality. But here's the sex code for what you can and cannot do and how you can or cannot uh, 
engage one another uh, without finding yourself for a student disciplinary code. So, in other words, the Judeo-Christian morality is thrown out. Now we have a legislated bureaucratic morality who can do what with whom when. So that's the question. Is there any norm to sex? The third question is, is there one way of anything? And Dr. Aiken mentioned the exclusivity of the gospel question. That certainly was going to hit us the closest, but the Islam question is in the same place. We're living in a world that increasingly accepts a worldview that says there cannot be one way of anything. And thus, when we come to speak about the gospel, many people are ready to hear us to speak about our way or a way. Uh, they literally have very little intellectual equipment to understand that what we mean is the way. And it appears to them to be absolutely totalitarian, hegemonistic, uh, you name it, uh, patriarchal. It's it, it, every every intellectual sin possible to arrive at that. But the fourth question is the question that relates to creation and all the rest, and, and that is, is the cosmos meaningful? Because the worldview of uh, naturalistic evolutionism leaves no space whatsoever for a meaningful cosmos. And if they ever have to take their worldview to its logical conclusion, which is one of our apologetic tasks, the nihilism is the only response. At the end of the day, if the cosmos is an accident, then we are accidents, and every incident and moment of our lives is just one in an infinite number of, or apparently infinite number of uh, instances that are similarly meaningless. And uh, Nietzsche had the only answer to that. We'll just add uh, one thing to what Dr. Moeller and Dr. Aiken just said, and we'll move on to uh, Dr. Little. Um, on the question of is there one way to anything, uh, I think as believers who trust in the Scriptures as being the very words of God, we have to, to stand with Scripture and say that there is one way to salvation, and that is God's way. And God's way is consciously focused faith on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But our exclusivism is the most inclusive exclusivism possible. And what I mean by that is this. In the book of Revelation, in chapters 5 and 7, the Christian scriptures teach us that God will win for himself worshipers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Not just from every continent, not just from every country, but from every type of person who has ever lived on the face of the earth. And I think it's a challenge for evangelical Christians. If you look around this room right now, this is a very white, very middle-class room. And it's an oddity. It's bizarre. If you look at the rest of our country, it's rare that you'll find a room like this. If you're in a government situation, if you're in a school, if you're pretty much anywhere else in society, you don't have a room full of white people. And I think it's incumbent upon us for the sake of the gospel to show a sort of a Christian unity within our local churches and between our churches for at least two reasons. I think when, when our churches model this and when we have black and white and Asian and Hispanic believers worshiping together and loving one another, it makes clear that our God is not a tribal deity, that he is the supreme Lord over the entire universe and that his word is so profoundly true, his character so comprehensively good, his countenance so strikingly beautiful that he will win for himself worshipers from every type of person who has ever been created. And number two, it undercuts racial pride. God killed his son not just to win white people, not even primarily or especially white people, but to win worshipers from every type of person who's ever lived. And so I hope that we can uh, work toward that because if we don't, it tarnishes the gospel. 
And it, it shows people something that is at odds with the gospel that we preach. And so I'll mention that as just an, an added issue along with the question of is there one way to Christ. Dr. Little? Now, Dr. Little has a very big brain, so don't be fooled by his last name. <coughs> the, only, the only problem is it's uh, empty. <laughs> Someone says, how many, I ask, how many people did you have in your class? It was full. Well, maybe it was a closet they were having that <laughs> class. In. I don't think that size necessarily tells us anything, and this will be the case on this point. I agree totally with what has been said, and it's no wonder that the seminal article essay written by Samuel Huntington now back in the 1990s, when he made the argument on the class of civilization, on the clash, of civilizations, that at the end of the day, it will not be geographical boundaries, it's going to be worldviews that set up the debate and even conflict. But I would want to share or add two other things, not in contradistinction to, but in addition to. I think that in the days ahead, the church is going to need to pay attention to who it is, to whom it belongs, to recover what I would say is a true, historic, faithful understanding of the church. Now, some of my concern is that we are busy on the outside fronts, and I'm not sure we're giving sufficient attention to who we are as the bride of Christ and our holy calling out of darkness into light. So I think that's something, if it's not a challenge, it surely raises a concern for us, and we must not become so involved in what we're doing on the outside that we sort of let our own house uh, go in disrepair. The second thing is that I think we're going to have to stand against the myth of naturalism uh, that is claiming that universal moral standards can be achieved by brain states. This is something that is gaining great popularity. Uh, you can think of people like Mark Hauser who wrote his book. And in tandem with that is this debate, which is called the mind-body problem, the philosophy of mind, where now we're even seeing those within the evangelical community saying, that man is not a, they are not substantive dualist, uh, that they are a physicalist, that man is totally a physical entity. Uh, now, they all work at it a little bit differently, but I think those are some, uh, that should be a real concern to us, that uh, I think that since 9-11, uh, it has not been fashionable to be a moral relativist. And so there's been a work by the naturalists using neuroscience in particular to establish the fact that we can account for universal morals based on totally a brain state. So those would be things at least we should be watching if they're not challenges to us. I've been fascinated and in very broad agreement with everything that's been said so far. I think back to the fall of the Roman Empire and that fell um, not just because there were all sorts of Goths and various baddies out there sort of piling into it, 
but because it was rotting on the inside. And I think that those two things, the attacks from outside and the moral decay inside, are the two things that are, are going to be absolutely critical um, it, when you guys are, are in power um, in society. The Christian church today uh, in the West is in very serious decline. Europe is almost uh, post-Christian. That's very true of lots of Britain, uh, a great deal of Britain. There's all sorts of lively places, but death spiritually is around. And it's growing death in America as well. Um, and we've touched on, on, on morality and, and so on already, but uh, the personal life of Christians is so much more compromised than it was. We do things which our forefathers wouldn't dream of doing. And um, the place of the Bible in church discussions has very, very largely gone backwards. Um, there was an American bishop not long ago who said the church wrote the Bible, the church can write a new Bible today. Um, that is how little people, um, in, often in leadership positions, um, how little respect they give to the source of our faith, which is these primary documents bearing witness to what God has done in Jesus Christ. So I think that rot from within is absolutely critical. And the assaults from without, the two I think I would pick out, is an ever-growing secularization and an ever-advancing Islam. I don't know how much you know about Islam. My son has been a missionary in Pakistan for 15 years. And um, he's had bullet holes in his, uh, in his house where he's been shot at and um, uh, so on. Uh, it is a, a highly um, militant faith. Uh, the, the media love to separate uh, the extremists from um, the uh, more uh, tame, gentle Muslims. And of course there are plenty of tame, gentle Muslims. But when you look in their basic document, the Quran, you'll find, if you look into Surah 9 there, that it says, kill the infidels wherever you find them. And that is what lay behind 9-11. Uh, these guys were shouting, um, Allah Akbar, God is great. And they were going to their deaths happily in order to slay vast, bigger numbers of unbelievers from the Muslim point of view. And there's got to be a way of handling the Islamic situation. You guys need to know about Islam. And you need to know what is being done in different parts of the world to win people from Islam. There are masses of conversions from Islam. They're mainly in Southeast Asia. But it's perfectly possible because in Islam you can never know God. That is a killable offense to claim that. And you can never know that your sins are forgiven. Allah is merciful. You can hope it may happen. But to claim it is uh, one of the worst sins uh, in Islamic culture. So I think these two things, 
We've got to become a society of people that are radiantly transcultural, uh, where colour doesn't matter, two pins, where wealth doesn't matter. And that's a very big uh, pressure point in the States here because the division between rich and poor is terrible. And it's not reflected in the way in which churches are made up. And so I think we've got to really pay attention to the inside and the outside. And that would be my penny worth on something. Yeah, let me piggyback on the Islam comment for just a moment. I've spent, uh, the Lord has put me in the working in Islamic context for about 15 years now. And I think another fundamental problem with Islam, and a fundamental problem with any world religion, is a misunderstanding of humanity and uh, the nature of the problem we have. Every religion, every philosophy, every worldview has a diagnosis of the human condition. And in Islam, the diagnosis of the human condition is, is, is not that we have evil or wicked hearts. It's not that we're born predisposed towards sin, bent with an inclination against God or idolatrous. It's that uh, you're born neutral or even good. And uh, the problem that you have is just a problem of knowledge. So what you need is to be given proper knowledge. You need a prophet, not a savior. And uh, you, you, you need a correction of knowledge rather than salvation. And if you start with an improper diagnosis, then there's no way you're going to end up with a, a proper salvation. And, you know, if you'll take a look at uh, Muhammad and his life, it's not only Muhammad's teachings that you should find the infidels wherever you can and strike them. It's, it's Muhammad's example. So while you can find many Muslims who are kind and generous and good people, to the extent that they return to original Islam and to the life of Muhammad, particularly as shown in the Hadith, these are the, the sacred traditions of the things that Muhammad said to his closest friends and followers, you're going to find a violent man. He, uh, in two occasions, people composed poems that poked a little fun at him. You know, they did that to Socrates, Aristophanes did, and Socrates just kind of laughed it off, but... Muhammad ordered them to be assassinated. Um, Muhammad led caravans of, of uh, his soldiers to raid um, traitors that came through. His sword was dripping with blood. And so I think one thing that we can do is, uh, as we're sharing the gospel with Muslims, is to show them Jesus versus Muhammad. Just take those two lives and put them side by side. If you want a biography of Muhammad that tells the truth about him... <clears throat> You won't find many written in the 20th century that tell the truth, but if you find the earliest trustworthy biography of Muhammad written by an Arab man, Ibn Ishaq, buy that biography and read it. Ibn Ishaq, I-B-N hyphen I-S-H-A-Q, and you'll see the truth about Muhammad, and you'll see what you're dealing with when you deal with Islam. So Bruce, we can, this, I, can I ask Dr. Sure. Green a follow-up? God's blessed you now 80 years, yes. and you've had ministry on both sides of the Atlantic. Yep. Do you see America in many ways, and the American church, let's be more specific, the American church tragically following what has happened to the church in Europe? I do. Um, on the surface, the American church is far stronger than anything in Europe. But these whole currents that you were talking about, about what human beings are, the whole um, undercurrent, particularly in the academy, um, the, 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 the entrenched liberalism of uh, American universities. This is affecting the media. It's affecting politicians. Political correctness all grows out of it. And uh, I, I believe that uh, unless this side of the pond looks very, very carefully, both to the dangers within and the dangers without, that you'll go the same way as Europe. I pray God I'm wrong. 
Um, but uh, uh, that is my fear. So we have this massive issues, and we've only really um, touched on the surface of it. And I think one of the things that's helpful is to look at some of our forefathers in the faith, those who have gone before us, or maybe even some who are still alive today, who have pointed the way forward on how to engage uh, cultural issues. Christianity was never meant to be a religion that we practice in isolation from the redeemed community. And so our next question really has to do with who are some models, some Christian theologians or um, public figures who are exemplary in engaging the culture? And maybe, uh, Dr. Aiken, if you'll get us started again. Well, I think there's one sense in which we have to realize that no, how, no matter how well we do this, there's always going to be a degree of rejection and that we're not ever going to be accepted. Um, by its very nature, the gospel is going to be offensive. And now we don't want to be offensive. That, that was what I think a number of Al and I were saying, Dr. Mullen and I last night, that we present an offensive gospel. But we don't need to be ourselves the one who are offending and therefore keeping people from the gospel. But I look at Dr. Moeller, whom I believe God really has used wonderfully well, not only within Southern Baptist life, but the evangelical world to represent us well in the public square. But, but he himself would tell you that there are persons that would not give him the time of day that are going to be rude, condescending, uh, dismissive, because they simply find uh, the message intolerable. And so you think of uh, the four horsemen of atheism that are out there today, and uh, especially someone like a Richard Dawkins, he just thinks we're absolute buffoons. He thinks we ought to be locked up somewhere. He can't believe that Neanderthals like us are still walking the earth. They, they went away, you know, uh, centuries ago, but gosh, here they are. And uh, so I think there's a sense in which we realize we're never going to be accepted. Now, having said that, uh, I do think C.S. Lewis provided a wonderful model. Uh, I even think Francis Schaeffer did, though Schaeffer was a prophet to the church. Not so much to the culture. He was trying to engage the church uh, with his concerns and therefore trying to, again, help us heal and do well from the inside out. But I don't think anyone's probably better equipped to say, uh, to answer this or deal with it than, than Dr. Muller. So let me pass the baton. Well, that's kind. But I'm not sure exactly what I even want to say here, other than uh, I, I don't think our ambition should be to speak to the culture. I, I, I don't think that should be our, our target. Our goal is to be faithful to the gospel. And we are culturally embedded creatures by God's providence. God has intended for us to be situated within certain cultures and to have a responsibility to speak. The first thing I would say is just uh, recognize in the history of the Christian church, every model is a mixed model. Uh, you know, you go back to the, the midpoint of the 20th century, a man by the name of H. Richard Niebuhr tried to describe five different engagements, models of, of engagements of Christ and culture. All of them now look pitiful uh, in retrospect, uh, partly because the times change. The culture itself changes. The disposition of the culture to truth claims changes. The placement of the church within the culture changes. So if I'm looking backwards, I would point to someone, and, and this is an impossible task, but I would point to someone like Augustine. And uh, you talk about a time of cultural upheaval. He was writing the very time Dr. Green was talking about in the collapse of the Roman Empire, which was to Romans of the time, the collapse of an entire system of meaning. Uh, they, they could not imagine a world without, without Rome. And when he wrote The City of God and the City of Man and spoke of two cities and two loves, he, he, 
he set forth a Christian mode of cultural engagement that made clear that the gospel is supreme over all cultures. But God loves people. The people he loves are in cultures. And therefore, we are to pay attention to the city of man, even though our primary allegiance is to the city of God. You could look at someone like William Wilberforce. Uh, but the thing to remember about Wilberforce is that there was a particular historical question and he knew the gospel related to it and he just spoke to that question. Wilberforce is not remembered across the board as a great theorist of culture. He was just a brave Christian who understood one issue and put his life on the line for that issue. You can think of someone like Jonathan Edwards. If you were to look at contemporary evangelical and um, even mainline Christian scholarship, and look at who apparently is the great interest of intellectual engagement in terms of the American theological tradition, well, it's Edwards. Even Yale went to the expense of a massive publication. This is Yale, that Yale, uh, of, of Jonathan Edwards, one of the most orthodox uh, of all Christians in American history. And yet the amazing thing is that Edwards is seen as a great model of intellectual engagement now. He actually wasn't during his own lifetime. And so there are all kinds of mixed models here. I just want to give you three imperatives. Number one, think. That's a good place to start. Cultural engagement begins with thinking. And, and that means actually putting the thought process into how the claims of Christ, how the claims of the gospel, how the claims of biblical truth lay claim on you as you consider these issues. The second imperative is read. You need to be very careful and avid consumers of the conversation of the culture around you. You need to know what is going on. And by that, I don't mean MTV. Not that that's irrelevant. But I mean the larger intellectual culture. If, if you are not, for instance, regularly looking at the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and, and the major intellectual conversation in the culture then you're not really concerned with the mind of the culture. You're just concerned with its artifacts, with its products. And, uh, and, and I'm not suggesting the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, the great intellectual organs of, of the day, but that is, that is the public square where intellectual ideas are now being hammered out. So first, think. Second, read. And third, articulate. Speak. Write. Blog. Tweet articulate on the basis of Christian conviction. Cultural engagement is best seen just by articulating Christian truth and, and trusting that that's, that's how you start to define issues first for yourself and then for others. Uh, if the national media come asking you a question, answer it. But they're going to ask questions of people who are articulating in a world in which most people are merely listening. And you need to be a voice that is articulating on behalf of Christian truth. Let me take that think, read, and articulate, and articulate it for, uh, illustrate it for a moment through the life of Augustine, the first uh, theologian you mentioned. So 1,600 years ago, in a similar um, social and cultural context uh, to the one in which we now live, a man named Marcellinus uh, walked among the cultural elite in Rome. Rome was being sacked by the Vis Visigoths and the Vandals, and uh, the Romans were asking the question, why is this happening? Some of the cultural elite, many of them were saying it's the fault of the Romans for forsaking the Greco-Roman pantheon and worshiping the Christian God. And so Marcellinus wanted to give a, a witness to God and to the gospel and to do so in a way that was compelling and reasonable, but he felt at a loss to do it, so he, he wrote a letter to Augustine and said, can you help me? You, you know, you're the smart guy here. You're Danny Aiken or Al Mohler. You know, I'm just Marcellinus. 
And so he wrote him a letter, and Augustine wrote him back a 12 or 1,300-page letter that we now know as the City of God. Um, overkill, maybe, but no, it wasn't. <laughs> one, of, one of the best books written in the history of Western civilization. And in that book, he does several things. One thing he does is he gives biblical theology. He walks through the Scriptures. That man knew God's Word, and he told, he told the Scriptures as a unified and, and coherent narrative. And he told that narrative well and with power and with precision. The second thing that he did is he showed them that he had read their books. He quoted um, Sallust, uh, one of their poets. He quoted uh, their, their historians, their poets, and their philosophers. And he quoted them easily. He affirmed them when he could. And he upended them and overthrew them when he needed to, using Christian scripture. And, and, and the big picture when you step back from the city of God is there is a man who understands God's word and believes it. And he also understands God's world. And he's able to take God's word and apply it to God's word with precision and I think in a way that was compelling. It wasn't unnecessarily offensive as uh, Dr. Moeller and Dr. Aiken uh, spoke about last, uh, yesterday evening. I mean, if you like to read and you don't mind digging into a serious book, you ought to dig into Augustine's City of God. So I'll, it was I'll the most influential book for a thousand years apart from the Bible. Quite amazing. Well, the question is, do I know any exemplary Christians? Well, actually, I do know some um, that emulate, engage in the culture. I would say Francis Schaeffer for me. Um, maybe that I'm prejudiced. Uh, over my own personal life and his impact on me, but not so much to follow his precisely a one-to-one -one correspondence with everything he did, uh, because as Dr. Moeller has pointed out, you know, different times call for different things, different strokes for different folks, however you want to put it. That was my academic uh, quote for the day. <laughs> But what he taught me, and I think a whole generation of evangelicals, which unfortunately have passed off the scene and has been forgotten, was the whole issue of how to view humanity. And to think, as Dr. Mola has it, we do not think today about how what is going on around about us, the real gritty part of life, how the gospel uh, interacts with that. And we tend to be quite quick to pick up methodology in the church without understanding the underlying assumptions that give rise to those methodologies, programs, etc. And then, before we know it, those ideas are already percolating through the church before we realize, whoops, this wasn't really a good way to go. Uh, Schaefer, I think, gives us a model uh, first of all, understanding something about humanity that only Christianity can answer. How is it that on the one hand, and I heard Dr. Aiken speak to this last night, how is it on the one hand that we can see such wonderful things coming out of humanity, such beautiful things, such noble things, in fact, if you please. In fact, Schaefer even used that term. He said, I want to speak about the nobility of man. He said, I know some of you will not like that, but 
he knew when to talk about the nobility of man, if you please, but also to explain the ugliness and the cruelty of man. And that only Christianity answers that question. I mean, satisfactorily, in a coherent fashion. So, for me, I'm not saying that Schaefer is the only one, but I do think he gives us a good model because he started with a solid theological foundation. And then his theological understanding is what drove everything else in his life. Schaefer did not begin thinking, I need to engage culture. What he first thought about is, what does the Bible say? He read it through twice every, every year. We have his Bible, and you can see all the notes he made as he worked through it. And it was through his theological understanding that came his, this notion of interacting with, from a theological foundation, the culture at large. How do you read culture? How do you interact? And what is the basic question that culture is asking, and how does Christianity answer that? I'd like to pick up on that. Um, I knew Francis Schaeffer. I'm that old. And <laughs> um, we became uh, very close friends. And he was a, a very entertaining chap, although he was actually a tremendously... Um, uh, you know, he, he'd be on his own and be miserable and so on. But when you got talking to him, he was absolutely fascinating. And what he wanted to do when he was talking to unbelievers, and he made it possible for all sorts of types of background people to come to faith, he would take, he'd find out what their, their, their worldview, as he calls it, was, and then he would say, right, if you believe that, let's take it back and see what assumptions lie behind it. He led them to the logic of their presuppositions. And then he showed them that they couldn't live with it. That is a fascinating thing. There was one occasion when uh, there was a massive uh, advocacy of free love, you know, go to bed with anybody you like, uh, hop into bed. And, and, and Schaefer said, what a marvelous idea. You come up with that. Uh, what's the phone number of your girlfriend? Hey, you're not going to have the phone number of my girlfriend. <laughs> and, 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 so, and so, you see, you couldn't live with the logic of, your, of their proposition. And, and that's he regarded as the contemporary preaching of hell, to take the roof off and to allow the hail of truth to come in. Amazing, amazing man. There was one thing that will entertain you very much. Was, uh, he was uh, uh, in Huemo in, um, in uh, Switzerland. He is a little guru of the Alps, this man. And uh, people would come from all over the world, all sort of card-carrying communists and whatever, and sit listening to this chap. Um, and everybody, all, all the aficionados went round with earphones on with endless tapes of, of Schaefer. And he, one anarchist said, was saying, you know, that there's, there's no reason why you shouldn't uh, beat up anybody that you like. There's no rules. There's nothing that matters in society. And so Schaefer just flicked his finger and four men, four of his troopers turned up they whipped the guy onto the floor and they held one corner each, two arms and two legs. And then another one came in and handed Schaefer a baseball bat. <laughs> and Schaefer lifted up his bat and he looked at this guy on the floor like that and he said, give me one reason, according to your worldview, why I should not bash your brains out. And the chap said, I can't think of one. <laughs> 
and that man became a Christian. Um, <laughs> no, no, seriously, um, when you have with great tenderness shown that people cannot live with the position that they outwardly maintain. That is hell because the whole structure of their life has been built on that and that has collapsed. And then they're ready to look at the alternative. And the alternative is what Schaeffer called true truth. Truth is not just relative. You've got your truth, I've got mine. There is real truth. And it is embodied in Christ and the Gospel. And everything else is not true truth. It's got elements of true truth in it, maybe, but it's not the real article. And so when people come to a state of despair, the line of despair, as he calls it, and they realize that what they've been living for is not going to work, then truth has a chance to break through. Sorry, I got to town on that. That was wonderful. So let's take a comment that you made and tease that out for just a moment. You spoke of how Francis Schaeffer would approach a person and uh, find out the, their set of beliefs, and he would try to uncover their presuppositions and then show uh, if those presuppositions were taken to their logical conclusion uh, that that person was living in an unlivable world, that their uh, system was logically incoherent, empirically inadequate, existentially not viable, that it just was an unlivable world. So let's take a case study here. And uh, I'm going to take two or three minutes and describe a particular person and then ask if our panelists will help us to uh, Schaeferize this person. Okay? And so this is a, a man named Peter Singer. Dr. Moeller's written about him on his blog probably two, three, four times. I don't know, maybe 15 years ago or so, Princeton University decided they wanted to hire uh, somebody for their Ira W. DeCamp Chair of Moral Philosophy, one of the most prestigious chairs of philosophy in the country. Who knows how many hundreds of thousands of dollars salary are attached to this chair. And when they went and searched for somebody to teach, they couldn't find anyone good enough in the States here uh, to teach their 18-year-olds how to be ethical. And so they, they had to go to Australia, and they found this fellow named Peter Singer. Let me tell you about <clears throat> Peter. He's an atheist, and so he believes that when you're defining a human, you can't do so by saying, well, humans are created in the image and likeness of God, they have souls, they possess <laughs> dignity. He said, if you have to be honest to your presuppositions, and he's trying to be, he ultimately fails, but he tries, he says you define a human uh, functionally, you know, by how well they function, you know, how, how conscious are they and how healthy are they. So, you know, somebody between the ages of, say, 15 and 75 is, is, uh, is very human, but somebody who's, you know, three months or six months or, or maybe 85 or 90 is, is not so much human. Um, that's getting dangerous. <laughs> so, you know, I actually brought some, uh, some quotations, and I'm going to have to pass on those because time has flown pretty quickly. But uh, let me mention to you two implications of how he defines humanity, two, 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 two effects of that when he does moral philosophy. Um, the, the first is life and death issues. When, uh, is it okay for us to determine who lives and who dies? when we're dealing with innocent folks who haven't committed crimes and so forth. And he says that it is okay. And uh, he says not only is abortion okay, but perhaps we should allow for infanticide. You know, maybe parents should have a period of time after a baby has been born to decide whether or not to take that baby's life. And so, for example, if you have a baby that's mentally or physically handicapped uh, and you uh, have the choice of saving a mentally or physically handicapped baby or a, a spotted owl, uh, you would save the spotted owl because it's a more inherently valuable animal than a mentally or physically handicapped human. Both are animals, by the way, humans and 
and spotted owls. Uh, Neither of us have souls. We're just a higher stage of evolution. Um, So his evolution, theory of evolution, is tied into this, and there are implications for that theory. Euthanasia. Um, He believes that when folks get of a certain age and uh, they're frail and their mental faculties and physical faculties are failing, that it's probably the best thing that a society can do is put them down. Interestingly, he didn't choose to do that when his mother fit within those categories. And so you could see that he couldn't bring himself to do what he had stated one ought to do. The second thing that I'll mention is a little bit uh, disgusting, and I hope you can can handle this for just a moment. I think we need to mention it because uh, when you start with the wrong presuppositions, you always end up in absurdity. So he actually argues that bestiality is okay in some cases. He calls it zoophilia. Um, If you want to read his article, it's called Heavy Petting. Um, find it online, nerve.com. And uh, he, he argues that, you, you know, if, if we're animals, if evolution is true, we're animals. And if atheistic evolution is true, we're animals who don't have souls, then why would it be wrong for a human to have sex with an animal? Now, this is the most influential, some would say the most influential ethicist alive, certainly the most well-known. He argues uh, something like this. He said, you know, it needs to be mutually uh, beneficial for the animal and the person. So he says it's probably not good for a male homo sapien to have sex with a chicken because it would hurt the chicken, but it would probably be okay for him to have sex with a donkey. You know, I'm not even sure what to say there. You know, it's, it's Neither am I. I don't know what to say either. I, uh, last night we were romping through Song of Solomon. Now we're heavy petting. Um, <laughs> I, I'm sure we'll have a big crowd again next year, but other than that, I don't know what else to say. So uh, let's, let's take this as a case and let's ask how do God's people respond to a man like Peter Singer. And let me, let me mention several, several things that I hope we can cover together as a panel. One would be um, um, how does the local church respond? How do individual Christians respond? How do we respond in coffee, in coffee shop conversations? How do we respond in op-ed pieces in newspapers or on radio shows? Um, so those are different venues and avenues of response. And then also, what type of language do we use? Do we want to respond uh, using explicitly Christian language? I think we would always say yes, but would there also be uh, an opportunity for natural law reasoning, uh, for using common uh, moral consensus and and some sort of common human reason to show the absurdity of of what Singer has to say? So how how do we approach this? Well, I'll just pick up one aspect of it, and then I'll pass it on. Uh, in one sense, he's done us a favor in that he has shown us the logical end of what uh, a relativized ethic will lead to. Uh, the whole issue of gender, as, as Dr. Moeller articulated so well earlier, has such far-reaching uh, ramifications in all of life. And the fact of the matter is, if we do away with an understanding of marriage and, and gender as one man, one woman, covenant of marriage then Pandora's box is opened. So not only do we move to now same-sex relationships, uh, we have no argument against uh, polygamy. We have no argument against mixed relationships of two on three and four on two or whatever else you want to come. And if we are nothing more than highly developed animals, then what is the logic against bestiality? Now, of course, what many would say immediately, just like last night when I alluded to the uh, fact of the family in Australia that had the three sons, find out that she's pregnant with two more sons, and she aborts them with the consent of her husband because they so desperately want a girl. 
Well, there was, uh, and, and Dr. Mueller wrote on this and speak to it even more than I, but there was moral outrage all over the world. The problem is they don't know why, or at least they could not articulate why. Leads back to the other issue. It's what some people refer to as, and this is my uh, sophisticated academic word for the day, the yuck factor. The yuck factor. The idea of a human copulating with an animal is just yucky. Yuck. But here's the problem. What is yucky for one generation will be acceptable the next I'll give a very uh, easy illustration, and I'll move on. And let's, let's be honest for a moment. How many of you out here uh, watch this new sitcom? Not all new, but this sitcom called The Modern Family. Let me see your hands. Not as many as I would have thought. It's, uh, it's highly popular all over the country. Not an honest crowd. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> um, I, I, I was introduced to it this week by Dr. Moeller. And, um, <clears throat> but, uh, with every good intention in that one, uh, here is a show that is, uh, artistically and as far as comedy is concerned, I mean, it's, it's incredible. These people are extremely talented, gifted writers. All right. That's one level. But on the second level, homosexuality and just bizarre interrelationships in terms of what family now is, it's just considered normal. This is, this is who we are. This is where we are. And it's very good at legitimizing what even 10 years ago, 10 years ago, would have been absolutely off the radar screen and considered morally unacceptable. So here's the question. So this is where we are today. Where will we be 10 years from now and where will we be 20 years from now if the flow of culture continues to track in the direction that it's tracking? Let me just chip in on that. A very, very powerful point you're making that what is a yuck factor today is acceptable tomorrow and is the superior morality of the day after. When I was young, if um, you were caught in sodomy, you were imprisoned. Now, it's being advocated as a perfectly admirable way for two people to behave. First, a word on, on your illustration. The, uh, the modern family phenomenon is interesting because it tells us about how moral change takes place within a culture. And it often takes place in the laugh track. And uh, that's what makes that particular cultural artifact so fascinating is because it tells us that America is now ready to laugh at this, uh, accepting it as normative. And, and an entire sea change is there. Peter Singer, he came from the University of Monash. He comes from the most secularized space and one of the most secularized cultures on earth. And he operates out of one of the most purely secular worldviews imaginable. And one of the things we always need to say as Christians is if we accepted his worldview, we probably couldn't do much better than this. Uh, it, when you read his actual writings and you, and you listen to him, if you accepted his basic structure of, of thought, you'd do well to articulate it as well and as consistently and even as courageously as he does if you accept that worldview. Of course, that worldview goes back to what I mentioned earlier, and that is that the cosmos is absolutely meaningless. 
And because we are all cosmic accidents, uh, what we basically have is a process of cultural demythologization that needs to take place because we have accepted life as if there is particular meaning inherent things we now know have no meaning, such as humanity over against animals. The distinction of, we now know, given a physicalist uh, university, use Dr. Little's uh, very apt illustration, we now know that wherever there is brain energy, there's a continuum. Uh, where there's sentience, there's simply a continuum. There's just more and less sentient beings. So looking at that continuum, Singer says, well, what's amazing is that a sentient pig, this is his own example, a sentient pig is actually then more value in thinking cognitive ability and in sentient conscious experience than a mentally retarded child. And so his point is, that sentience and value of life come down to three things, and they are uh, brain activity and uh, the ability to manipulate and use language and the ability to uh, have confidence in a future, to envision a future. And he argues that humans between the ages of birth and two lack basically those abilities, also the ability to control their bowels, uh, which makes them even more inconvenient. So you start to look at this and you realize that his worldview simply says that we privilege animals on now three bases, uh, their sentient uh, abilities, their relative scarcity. So this is where the animal rights movement comes in and says, here's an, you mentioned the spotted owl, here is, here is an animal that without which we will be robbed of biodiversity. There are plenty of babies with Down syndrome, but spotted owls are, are rare. It's hard to say these things. It's hard to hear them. But this is the worldview at work. Uh, and the third thing has to do with contribution to the common good, however that is defined. Well, just imagine that one of us is smart enough to figure out what is really conducive to the common wheel. If, if, if bereft of Scripture, if all we have is our own wisdom, how in the world do we know what's best? But nonetheless, that's where it is. So you ask how to relate. This is such a huge thing. And then you were kindly added about four or five codicil questions. Thank you. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll try to get to this. But the basic thing, how do you respond? Number one, hold his thought up in all of its horror. I, I mean, there is a sense in which the most important thing you can do about Peter Singer is read his books and talk about them. You know, hold it up and say, here's a man who really does believe this. And some of you think you hold to his presuppositions, but you're not nearly so courageous or honest as is he. But this is where this leads. This is it. That presuppositional tracking is easy with Peter Singer because he gives you the goods on a silver platter. This is, this is where it goes. You go from uh, an absolutely secularist worldview, you end up here. And, and if you're not in exactly his place, you're negotiating the particulars. The, the second thing is point out, and again, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, the, uh, the absolute collapse of civilization and meaning and order if those presuppositions are carried out to their logical conclusion. And then point out the fact that no one can actually live this way. Uh, Dr. Ashford mentioned Peter Singer's mother. He did not practice euthanasia with his own mother. He also, in contradiction to what he says about wealth and international justice, has a 401k funded by Princeton University. Uh, and so what you have, and so did John Rawls, uh, by the way, uh, another one who argued these things should not happen. Uh, it, you, can't, you can't live consistently with this. And so just hold it up there and, and let people see it 
And, and then always understand that what is going on when you talk about this is that people are having to look at, at the parade of the horribles and, uh, and, and figure out, it, it, are, are we really intellectually obligated to all of this? And the answer is, if this is your worldview, yes, you are. And uh, you simply have to do that. And another part of this that's really important is to understand that in the battle of ideas, uh, most people are good at assertions but not good at arguments. And, and Peter Singer shows up with assertions, but he backs them up with arguments. The only way to confront a Peter Singer is not with the assertion, he's wrong, but with the assertion of arguments as well. We have to combine with arguments. One final thought. Adam Smith, the founder of modern economics, trying to figure out, he was actually a moralist. He was an ethicist more than he was an economist. But Adam Smith, in the aftermath of the Enlightenment and the overthrow of authoritative morality and all the rest, and the overthrow of, of revelation and the name of reason and the French Revolution, and given all of that intellectual foment, he pointed out that when moral convictions disappear, moral sentiments remain. And we better count on that, by the way, by common grace. But when you look at Peter Singer and his own mother, where the moral convictions disappear, the moral sentiments remain. And we have a reason for that. It's because we're made in the image of God. And there's a conscience that cries out even when the brain is doing its best to deny. Wow. Just as a quick comment, I agree totally with what has been said here. Uh, Schaefer would have done precisely that. He would have carried, he would allow the individual to, to talk. He would listen to the individual. He would let them, okay, if this is what you said, talk me through where does this end up. Uh, Nietzsche was at least consistent. Uh, you might not like your system, which I don't, but he said if there is no God, then there are no Christian morals. That was exactly right. He was being consistent. So if you give uh, Singer his initial presuppositions, then where he comes to is precisely where you ought to, but it's totally arbitrary, which creates all kinds of difficulty in social living, particularly in what we'd call a global village everybody wants to talk about. Uh, but how I would do this is the same thing I did with a young Russian intellectual once who told me that there really were no morals and that after all he had no guilt because... Even if, he, if there were things that went on, he wasn't responsible for them. So he had no guilt, and there were no moral absolutes. There was nothing to live by. So I said, well, if I come, demon, I stay to your house, and I steal your jacket, won't you be upset? And he said, no, I wouldn't be upset. That's just the way things are supposed to be. So you've got my coat, I don't have my coat. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. So I said, well, in another email, this was all done by email, I said, now, now demon, suppose that I come visit you, and you let me stay in your flat, and when you go to work in the morning, I decide to have sex with your wife. Now, how will that go with you? And uh, the next day, I got an email from him, and he said, Dr. Little, you wouldn't do that. You're a good person. And you say, yeah, that's right. Now, see, immediately, you understand he could no longer live consistently. Now, all of a sudden, he's naming something good, and there's a standard to live by. I think that's what I've learned from Schaefer. I'm going to enjoy it. 
Okay, so we are actually a little bit over time. So what I'd like to do is just uh, to wrap us up before we head to breakout sessions is offer our speakers a, a, a one minute apiece to say anything they'd like to say in conclusion, just to challenge you, maybe recommend a book to you or just whatever they'd like to say. Uh, and if you'd like to pass, you can, you can pass on that. Maybe we'll start with Dr. Green and end with Dr. Green. Um, I, I would encourage you to see anything written by Ravi Zacharias, Francis Schaeffer, John Lennox, who is doing a major debate with Singer this summer, and Alistair McGrath, M small c, G-R-A-T-H, those are people on the cutting edge of the encounter between the Christian hope and the secularist society. And if, if you didn't catch the third name, Lennox, L-E-N-N-O-X, yeah. John Lennox. He's professor of mathematics at Oxford. Yeah. But he doesn't do much mathematics. He does an awful lot of going around the world <laughs> preaching the gospel. <laughs> but he's got three doctorates, so he doesn't really need to too much he, <laughs> Bruce I would just say uh, I agree Francis Schaeffer changed my life uh, you should read everyone should read How Should We Then Live uh, read Escape from Reason uh, and read The God Who Is There and it will change your way of thinking in terms of uh, we do have a talking God who has revealed himself and a reliable witness and one that we can stand on with confidence and then from there launch out to reach the nations with the gospel. I don't mean this to be profound, but very practical. You are, uh, as college and university students, in one of the most privileged seasons of life. Give yourself to it with abandon. Get everything out of it you can. In terms of your friendships and experiences and the extracurriculars that are glorifying to God, absolutely. But in the classroom and in the coursework, think of it not only as a course to be taken, but as an intellectual adventure that you're going to engage as a Christian. How, how does Christ want me to see economics, political science, music appreciation, the theory and practice of soccer, whatever it is, and give yourself to it. And during the time that you're in this season of life, find one or two intellectual ideas, subject areas, that you want to consider and think about for the rest of your life. And uh, give yourself to those as a Christian, and then share it with the body of Christ. Well, I would just say here, here, I have nothing to add to that other than in the discussion of Islam, I might recommend a little book called Without Roots. Uh, written by an atheist, uh, uh, Michel Perra, who's the president of the Italian Senate. Uh, and he, the other part of the book is written by Joseph Ratzinger before he became Pope. It's an amazing little book without roots and tells you what has happened in Europe and why it happened in Europe. It might be an insight to what might be happening in our own country. And uh, I'll just uh, piggyback on a couple of these comments uh, and put it this way. Don't waste your college. Um, you'll notice that the cultural elite in the United States of America are hostile to the gospel. The cultural elite in Hollywood, cultural elite in Boston, and by that I mean the academy, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, uh, Duke, UNC. Uh, many of your professors are hostile to the gospel. And one of the reasons that is the case is because evangelicals have abdicated their responsibility to be thoughtful and influential members of culture. We place value on what happens in, inside the four walls of a church building on Sunday mornings, but we have not placed value on what happens after that. 
So I want to encourage, I'm speaking to a, a, all of you and saying take your study seriously. And to a few of you who are gifted, I want to encourage you to get on your knees and ask God if he, if he would have you go through for a master's and a Ph.D. in some field of study that you're passionate about and, and excel in for the glory of God so that God can put you in certain circles where you can bear witness to the gospel. 